This morning's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Father, we huddle this morning together around your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that you have given it to us. We pray now that you would open our ears, soften our hearts, so that we might be responsive to your Holy Spirit in any way that uh, you would choose to speak or direct or guide this day, individually, corporately, whatever you desire, God, may your will be done. Lord Jesus, thank you. Amen. When uh, we are out of place, things seem and tend to be, and sense, to be awry. I grew up in a little town about the size of Novato, and uh, in the town of Enid, a lot of uh, Enid, Oklahoma, a lot of reasons uh, given for the naming of the town. Um, one is that an old dusty cowboy came riding into town one day, and there at the only restaurant in town that uh, once had the sign that said dine on it and the wind had blown it off and it was dangling upside down and the cowboys read Enid and therefore uh, that stuck as the name of the town. Did I grow up in an exciting place or what? Uh, Enid, um, it wasn't just Enid, it was uh, 1818 Mimosa Drive where I spent my childhood uh, from the time I was five years old. And uh, a block down the street, there was a creek where I used to go down and catch crawdads and do some frog gigging. And if you don't know what frog gigging is, you can come and find me later. Um, I'd go and wade in the creek uh, in the springtime when the water was high and uh, all sorts of things uh, that we did there. Right next to the creek was a vacant lot where we did a lot of softball and a lot of sports, a lot of football, which was my great love growing up. Uh, About four blocks the other direction, there were... Uh, Pillsbury had some grain elevators. Uh, in the part of the state where I grew up, we had some of the largest grain elevators in the entire world. And um, so in the summer nights when our windows would be raised, I would hear the sounds of trains coming and going, coupling and uncoupling, crashing together. At first it was a startling noise, and after a while that became a familiar sound and became quite a soothing uh, way for me to drift off to sleep, I would ride my bike over near the grain elevators and watch the, the trains and uh, loading and unloading their, their wares. Um, Enid, Oklahoma, a lot more could be said, but it gave me a place of grounding 
It uh, helped me know that I was rooted somewhere in a place. And though I may have grown up without a dad, I I knew I had a name. I I knew I was loved and uh, that because I both had a place and a name, those were significant realities for me in giving me a sense of identity, a sense of people to whom I belonged. And uh, even though I may not have known as a child growing up where I was going, I at least knew where I was. And uh, because of my mother's good parenting, I knew where I shouldn't go uh, in choices of my life. Now, when I was about 22 years old, I stepped on an airplane and arrived in Paris, France, and the smaller airport there, and I think I've shared the story with you, uh, the, the airport of Orly, and I was off on my journeyman experience, two years of mission life there, and I stepped off the airplane in some cut-off jean shorts and some work boots, that was the style of the day, and a t-shirt, and you know, I thought I was pretty cool, and I thought I'd arrived in France and going to do something there, and I, honestly, I was scared to death, and I was sweating bullets, and uh, I knew about five words of French, and I got off the airplane, and all I knew was that someone was supposed to meet me there. I didn't know, uh, I knew their name, but I didn't know what they looked like, I didn't know, this was long before cell phones or anything else, and so... I disembarked the plane, and uh, I enter in. Fortunately, it was a small airport. I had never gone beyond about a three-state radius, let alone across an ocean. And so here I am, and I, I walk through the airport, a small airport, and I was told, just follow the crowd, and they'll go where you need to go. And so here I am, finally, through uh, immigration, and uh, there's this long line of chairs that stand back-to-back, and... Um, uh, after about 30 minutes, people begin, you know, you're watching them greet people that they know and walking off and other people grabbing their bags and walking out of the airport. And uh, little by little, the airport just, everybody disbands. And uh, it's not long before I'm all alone. But before that time arrived, as I was blurry-eyed, I was so tired, and uh, people were standing there before everybody left. Um, they were standing there with signs uh, as a welcoming party, and, and I'd walk by, and I started doing laps around these chairs, walking by, just hoping somebody would recognize I, I was obviously lost and didn't know what I was doing. And I would look at the signs, and they'd be written in French, and, um, and I would look at it, and, you know, strange names that were not even near mine. And uh, about the third time, lap around these chairs, I began to look at signs that were also written in Arabic, and I would do a double take, thinking, well, maybe I misread it the first time. I was beginning to get desperate. I wanted to go somewhere, and I wanted somebody to come and to claim me so that I would know who I was with, and I wouldn't feel out of place, and I wouldn't feel out of sorts. And uh, finally, I just sat down, and I said, Lord, here I am. Uh, this isn't all that exciting, but I'm pretty nervous because I don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, when you learn language uh, from uh, back then, it was uh, audio tapes. You know, they learn, teach you how to ask questions. You know, where's the library? Like, that's a real big help if you're going to some country. Uh, or even, where's the bathroom? But, uh, you know, what puzzled me was, even if you can ask and formulate a question, how are you going to understand the response? And, and so, you know, that doesn't really any help. So here I sat in the airport waiting, and finally, finally, the person arrives. And there was a big mix-up in traffic and all sorts of things. And I was so delighted. To have somebody coming who knew me, <laughs> somebody who knew where they were on planet Earth, because I certainly didn't. Somebody who was familiar with the roads and could drive me to the place where I needed to be. And that was where I would have dinner and sleep that night. And it was so good to be embraced and to know that even in that moment, I was still in a strange place, but I, I had a place. And I had a people who knew me and claimed me places and names 
are extremely important. Places orient us to life. We need a place. We crave a name that informs us, that tells us something about who we are, that gives us a sense of our identity, a sense of our history, a sense of what can be in the days and years to come. When we, um, in our culture, uh, when there is misnaming that happens or denaming that happens, personhood is attacked and demeaned. We, um, we see that sometimes in playful ways, other times in very uh, intentional ways. Uh, it, it's um, done when uh, people are reduced to simple numbers. Uh, you remember uh, probably the musical in the book, uh, Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. And what... Uh, one of the things that I've often remarked about was how Javert, as he chases Jean Valjean, is that often he doesn't refer to Jean Valjean by his name. Very rarely does he seem to do that. He usually either calls him Monsieur Le Maire or, do you remember, by his prison number. And often that's repeated throughout the musical. And that's how he has a way of demeaning and uh, compartmentalizing somehow his relationship to Jean Valjean. Names are important, but they can also mock and humiliate other people. Now, my last name is Butler. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to enter into the world of childhood pranks and gags and, uh, and laughs that uh, when you're receiving uh, the end of the laughter. And uh, I have weathered those storms. Uh, kids can be so kind when you have a fun, easily attackable name. But name is important. Because name gives us and shapes part of our identity. But place is also important. Because when we're deplaced, we we are disoriented. Because we don't know where we are, it's hard to know where we are to go from this point forward. Historians will caution us that we need to know from where we have come, or it's difficult for us to see where in the world we might go from here. Naming and placing. It identifies and distinguishes us from others. In the book of Acts, when um, Cornelius is uh, uh, given his vision and told to go and find out, uh, find this man named Peter, and uh, the location given, he said, you'll go to this town and you go to Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. You see, naming and placing distinguishes and identifies this Simon from any other Simon in that town. His house from any other house in town. This was Simon the Tanner. And his house happened to be there by the edge of the sea. That's where you are to go, Cornelius. That's where you are to send your detachment to go and find the man that I have prepared for you to encounter. And so he does so. Tiburon, we live in this town. Tiburon was originally named uh, for the peninsula around which we uh, This town has been built and grown up. Uh, Tiburon is the Spanish word for shark. That's why you'll see it on the city seal. Uh, Jake's soccer team was the sharks this year. Uh, Very possibly it was named Tiburon because of the leopard sharks that patrol the waters around here. So the next time you're tempted to go swim in the bay, uh, you might want to keep that in mind. Tiburon has a place. There is a place, and it's a place with a name. It's a place with a history. We know where we are, and that helps in so many ways, not only to know where I've been or where I want to go, but to know where I am is so critical in order to embrace the life 
that God has called you to. Not just to know where you've come from, not just to know where you're going, but to know where you are. Where has God situated your life right here, right now? To bring orientation to your life and to the working of God's Holy Spirit around and in your life. It is so, so important. Placing and naming are important to God. We see it in the details of our passage this morning. We see it in Jesus' life. And I pray this morning that we will embrace the importance of naming and placing in our own lives. We begin with um, the... Uh, In our passage, Matthew chapter 2, if you haven't already turned there, I invite you to. Matthew 2, chapter 19, after Herod had died. Herod, of course, um, we were coming at the end of Matthew's account of the the Christmas story. We're kind of uh, um, starting, I guess, the Christmas story this year from the end. Um, But uh, Herod was the one who had sought out to kill any rival who might uh, have any sort of claim to his throne. He was... He was a very violent man. He had no qualms with killing his own family members. So why not a little Jewish baby who's born, who someone from foreign lands is claiming to be a king? It was no big problem for Herod to go and try to wipe out all the boys in that particular village in and around Bethlehem. But now Herod, Herod's died. Those who, have, who were seeking to, to claim the life of Jesus have now passed on. Mary and Joseph have been refugees now for some time in Egypt. And here they stand. And the first thing that I'm struck by, yet again, is Joseph. We don't know a whole lot about Joseph. We don't encounter this Joseph character in the Bible a whole lot. But when we do encounter him, what I'm so uh, impressed by is his simple willingness to trust in God's plan. As confusing as it might have been, as difficult to embrace as it might have been, he simply lived a life of humble obedience to that which God was orchestrating in and around his life. He was willing, he was waiting, and he was responsive as God's servant to do his master's bidding. I wish we had time today. For over a decade now, I've been so impressed with Joseph and and Moses' life and the way God uh, worked with them and and I'm still being taught so many things through their simple obedience and response to God and, and uh, the way that God's, God's ways aren't always the easiest ways, but they're always the best ways. They're always the right ways, of course, but they're not always the easy ways. And sometimes God calls us to things that are difficult in life, and that's okay because we step out and we trust and we follow. You see, Mary and Joseph started in Nazareth, They were led to Bethlehem. You see how place is important in their lives? There the Christ child enters into the world, and uh, then they are rushed into refugee status into Egypt, a whole other land and country. And now the angel shows up. Poor Joseph must have had insomnia because the angel is always showing up in his dreams, giving him instructions, interrupting his peaceful sleep. But here he is again, the angel, saying, Joseph... It's all clear. It's time to head back to your homeland. Get Mary, get Jesus, and head back. I had the the interesting opportunity, uh, the one time I had a chance to visit Egypt, I stood on the bank of the Nile River where uh, it is claimed that uh, the Holy Family first disembarked their boat and stepped into Egypt. That was a pretty cool little little place uh, to think about and to try to put myself in that, that spot. 
Place. Place is so critical that oriented uh, Jesus to life. This is when they, they ended up going and finding their home in Nazareth. Um, the angel would, uh, would describe to them, uh, once Joseph learned that Archelaus was now ruling over Judea, where Jerusalem was, and where Bethlehem was. Perhaps Mary and Joseph had a, a sense, well, my, if Bethlehem is such a critical place, and that's the city of David, and that's where uh, we were when Jesus was born, perhaps that would be a significant place to, to go and, and take up residence again. We don't know, but uh, all we do know is that they were warned not to go there. Uh, he was afraid to go there because Archelaus, who also had a reputation for bloodthirst and violence, he was ruling in that area. So they ended up going back to Galilee, uh, settling there in Nazareth, a place where Jesus' life was oriented, a place where he grew up, the scripture would tell us, in, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's where he understood, uh, began to understand this relationship with his heavenly father. Nazareth is a real place on the map. It's about 15 miles west from the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Probably never larger than 500 people. Never once mentioned in the Old Testament. It was a small village overlooking the fertile Jezreel Valley. If you stood in Nazareth and looked to the south, you would uh, open up into this uh, amazing plain, um, into this valley. The peak of Mount Tabor was a short distance away. They sat in the shadow of it. Three miles to the north lay a city of Sephoris, which was a fairly cosmopolitan city, uh, a place with merchants and traders and government officials. It was the seat of government, uh, act, uh, Roman government activity there in their region of Galilee. The uh, large-scale building projects, one commentator suggests, uh, supported by Herod Antipas, provided jobs and an economic boost for the villages of the area. And there's some debate among scholars that maybe Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, uh, that maybe he uh, got a lot of work from the, the needs of that particular town and their building campaigns. But here in this town of Nazareth, Jesus absorbed the sights and sounds of the busy city of Sephoris during his childhood years, but he also delighted in other things like the beauty of grain fields right around his town, the orchards and the vineyards that were known in that particular region, the open meadows that surrounded him in Galilee. Because his parents were faithful Jewish worshipers, uh, several times a year they would get up and take a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, up the mountain. They would head south, but head up the mountain uh, for the festivals. Nazareth later in his life would be the place where the scroll was handed to him, and he would open it up, and he would announce in that place that I am the Messiah, in effect. Nazareth was a very significant place to ground Jesus to people, to this earth, and developing an understanding of his heavenly Father. But there's also a sense here in our passage of, of naming, uh, it says in verse 22, uh, Joseph, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went to live in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. You see, names identify, names distinguish from other things, from other people, from other realities and possibilities. 
The Nazarene was a fulfillment of prophecy. There's no direct prophecy that this is aiming at, uh, as others uh, would be, and as Matthew's gone to great pains to describe. Perhaps uh, it was a a pointing toward uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and the, the description of the root of Jesse. It says there in Isaiah 11, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesse, of course, was uh, King David's father, and we know Jesus the Messiah comes from the line of David. And so perhaps uh, in talking about Jesus the Nazarene, um, it shares some similarities with the Hebrew word for sprout or branch. Some uh, think that maybe it's pointing back to Hebrews chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and uh, understanding that Jesus is that, that shoot, that branch that, that blossomed out of the line of David. He was the promised one, the anointed one, Messiah, the chosen one, the only one in all of history who had the unique qualities to be Messiah, to uh, do what he was able to do on the cross, to pay for our sin, to open, to open the doorway to relationship with God. Jesus is the one, the only one who qualified to be that person, who was ordained to be that one. Nazareth was also Nowheresville. Can you say that with me? Nowheresville. Have you ever been to Nowheresville? Did you grow up like me in Nowheresville? But I tell you, the older I get, I am so grateful because God is good in his placement. God is good in his naming. Nazareth, you see, was an unimportant place. It was an out-of-the-way place. It was an unimpressive locale. Almost like, uh, at least where I grew up, it'd be like saying somebody's from the sticks, or he's a hick, or hillbilly. It's kind of like what you would be saying in uh, claiming that somebody was from Nazareth. Right? Jesus the Nazarene carried with it overtones of contempt. Remember in the first chapter of John... When um, John the Baptist stands there and he points over at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of the world who takes, or the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's uh, description of Jesus gathering his disciples begins there. And Nathanael is invited to come. And uh, he's told, We've found the one who's been spoken of for so long, the one that we've been waiting for, the man from Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's response? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In the latter parts of the book of Acts, when uh, the Jewish uh, leaders are there uh, before the Roman ruler um, of uh, Felix, they describe Paul as uh, being um, a Christian and referring to the Christians as the Nazarene sect, certainly an intent to, to hurt and to undermine I think perhaps we are to understand that the prophets, that this idea of uh, naming Jesus the Nazarene is to embrace the idea that Jesus is the one who would be despised and rejected. Jesus is the one who is fulfilling 
uh, this reality of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 42. We, uh, we begin to see some qualities of the suffering servant. Isaiah 42, the Bible says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth Justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Isaiah 42. Also, Isaiah 53, the concept of the suffering servant that is embodied in the life and ministry of Jesus. A few verses from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nazarene! That was a parenthetical insertion. (laughs) He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Nazarene, the the out-of-the-place one, the insignificant place. Jesus, not triumphant, but suffering servant. The one who came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. The one who, who said, you know what, I'm so strong, nobody really takes my life from me. Come on. I lay my life down out of my own desire. To bring you peace with God. Jesus has a name. Jesus had a place to grow up. And God gives us the same. Knowing where we are today. This church was established back in 1957. And if you look on a map, you notice that, and it's often been referred, it's interesting to me, as a banana-shaped piece of earth. This is the place where God has launched this particular church and located it on his created planet. In this space, in this building over the years, 50 plus of them, there have been baptisms where we have celebrated God's work of recreating in life, in a spiritual life. There have been weddings where people have professed promises And vows to each other. There have been funerals where those who who have been faithful for decades and now have been laid to rest, we rejoice and celebrate their life and consider their home going. Where children have been welcomed into the world, where we have prayed for and supported missions around the globe. In places like China, in places like North Korea, in places 
like Sausalito and Novato. This is a place where we have loved the lost and the hurting. This is a place. Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Pastor, talks about his growing up in Montana and how it shaped his life and a couple of interesting sentences. He said, Every detail in the life of salvation that I was becoming familiar with in the scriptures took shape in named places that, with a good map, I can still locate. Ur and Haran, Bethel and Peniel, Sinai and Shiloh and Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethany, Emmaus. I was also learning that every detail in my life of salvation was taking place on and in a named place, Stanwood and Kalispell, to begin with, later extended to include Seattle and New York City, White Plains and Baltimore, Bel Air and Pittsburgh, Vancouver and Lakeside, soil and stone, latitude and longitude, lakes and mountains, towns and cities keep a life of faith grounded and rooted in place. And he says, the life of faith cannot be lived in general or by abstractions. All the great realities that we can't touch or see take form on the ground that we can touch and that we can see. God has come to make his place with us and with us here for 50 plus years. And we pray for 50 plus more years. Whether we have been here for six months or 60 years, or whether we're uncertain about the length of our sojourn in Marin County, if God has drawn your heart to be part of this expression of his kingdom, are you faithfully following God here in this place, on this piece of earth, among these people? Look around you. Go ahead, look around you. Are you faithfully... Go ahead, look around. You're not wanting to look around. It's okay. (laughs) Are you faithfully living out that which God has called you to in this place among these God's people? Knowing who we are. You know, the Bible describes a lot of names for God, and they're wonderful to go through and to look at and to think about and to glorify God in. But God also has a few names for is redeemed. Names like friend. Jesus said, I no longer call you slave, but I call you friend because you know what the master's work is. You are called a treasure by God. You are called a masterpiece that God is shaping and forming so that you, you might fulfill that which God has prepared in advance for you to do. You are his masterpiece. He calls you son. Or daughter, because you've been adopted, and he is now your father in heaven. He calls you beloved. Hear that word today, beloved. Beloved. Say it with me. Beloved. You are God's beloved. You have a name. Because through Christ, God has redeemed you and brought you to his side. This church has a name, but what distinguishes us? We are known... On our signs and on our letterhead is Tiburon Baptist Church. And names distinguish and identify. Are we also named as faithful people? Are we also named as worshiping people? Are we also named as serving, missional, sacrificial, generous, and loving people? 
in the past, right now, and for the future to come, as God would lead us into that future. May it be so. Father, we do thank you and rejoice in this place, in the history that are filled in these walls. But God, we know this place has changed over time. We know that uh, people have changed over time, but your work is constant. You, God, continue faithfully. You show up, and you are. And we pray that each of us, starting with me, would examine my faithfulness in this place and to this people, right now, right here, that I would embrace that which you have named me as it would give me an understanding, a rounded understanding of identity and help me to know as together we step forward, as we make decisions about what, uh, what is and what you may want to do, may we have your wisdom, may we know your peace, may we have a sense of unity, unify our hearts and our minds and our thinking, we pray in Jesus' name.